Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. God, it is amazing. I don't understand. You came, you came here, you descended here into a world that, that hated you, and you lived a perfect life so that you could die so that we don't have to. But then it, the story doesn't end. You rose from the dead, and then, but then you gave us the Holy Spirit, and you asked us to participate, and it doesn't, it doesn't make sense why you, you would love us so much and, and why you would want us to participate. But God, we don't need to understand why. We just want to be obedient, and we love you, and we thank you for all that you've done for us. God, we pray for Justin that the, the, the Holy Spirit would, would drive the message and that he would communicate clearly and effectively. And God, we love you. Thank you for this day in Jesus' name. Amen. I um, am the type of person that I need a reason to do hard things. Um, when, it, when it comes to uh, something that was going to require a lot of time, a lot of effort, maybe uh, a lot of money, um, I'm going to be the person that asks why. Why, why are we doing this? Um, the traditionalists um, will, uh, will be frustrated uh, by me because um, if somebody you know, uh, responds to a why question, well, this is the way that we've always done it, uh, that's not going to be good enough for me. I'm going to push back on that, I'm going to say, but, but that's not really why, right? So, so why do we do uh, what we do? And um, one of the, the, the biggest elements of this, uh, probably in my personal life, is with exercise. Um, I hate exercise. Um, I, uh, I, blame, uh, I blame the Army, really. Uh, three years of, of running almost on a daily basis and, um, you know, uh, ruck marches and, and, and stupid words for calisthenics. I don't know if you guys know this, but the word for jumping jacks in the Army is side straddle hop. Isn't that ridiculous? The, the word for push-up in the military is front lean and rest. Right, the idea, like, why use two words when four will do? Right, like, it's, it's over, you know what the, the army word for sit-up is? It's 
it's actually sit-up, but it's a stupid exercise, and it's bad for your lower back. But I, I, I hate exercise. And, um, and for me, in order to do, engage in exercise, like it has, there has to be a reason. There has to be a purpose uh, behind it. My wife loves exercise. It's, it's stress-relieving to her. She tries to convince me that it's stress-relieving. I think eating potato chips is more stress-relieving than, than exercise is. And, um, and, and, you know, the, the, the whole idea of the purpose, like being, well, you'll live longer if you'll exercise. That's not a good motivator for me. I, like, I know Jesus. Like, there's no exercise with Jesus. I, like, that's not going to be a selling point for me. So um, I, I hate exercise. Now, um, if, if, however, there's a purpose to it, right? If there's a hike involved where you go and you get to, to see something cool, you get to experience something, then okay, right? If there's a, a, a bike ride um, involved where there's a, a decent destination at the end of it, then okay, I'm, I'm in for that, right? So um, years ago, Melissa and I, we, we, when we first moved to Salem, Oregon, we saw this, this sign driving down the road for this state park, and it was, um, it was, it was bragging about the oldest mission uh, west of the Mississippi, Mississippi River. The oldest, I think it was the, the oldest mission in uh, west of the Mississippi, it could have been just Oregon, but whatever. It, it was bragging about this really, really old mission, right? And so we decided to go and check it out. So uh, on a day off, um, we, we, we gathered up the boys and we, we drove out to the state park and they were really small at the time and so we had one of those uh, jogger strollers that was a side-by-side and so uh, we loaded the boys in that and we started headed off down this trail following the signs for the oldest mission in Oregon, Right? And uh, it's not normally humid in Oregon, but that day it was humid. It was really, really hot, and, and we're, we're chugging along, and, and we just keep following sign after sign that says this way to, you know, uh, Oregon's oldest mission. And so we finally get to the end of the trail, and there's a sign, and the sign says, this is where the oldest mission in Oregon was. <laughs> and we look around, and, like, there's not even, there, there's not a stone, that, that there's not a brick, like, there's, there's not a piece of foundation, like there's nothing but an empty field. Like imagine my disappointment at this, right? Like there could have been a sign in the parking lot that said, there used to be something cool here, now there's not, walk around aimlessly. <laughs> could have saved us a whole bunch of time. And, and so I look at this, I'm like, it, it, it's frustrating, right? What, what's the point of this? Now, um, we're in the book of Ephesians. And uh, this is about the forming of, of Christ's new community. This is about the church. And this morning we're going to talk about purpose. And the reality is, is if, if you've ever asked the question why, that's a good question to ask when it comes to the church. Now I'm willing to bet that, that for many of you, because you're here, you're kind of like the choir that I'm preaching to. Like if you're here, then you're kind of bought into church. Right? You're, you're willing to be here. You're willing to, to even serve. You're willing to, you know, make coffee or to, to you know, teach kids or whatever. Like, you're, you're here and, and, and you're in. Like, you understand the purpose of, of church. Um, and so for you this morning, I hope that when you see these challenges that are sort of laid out in front of us by Paul, that you will rise to those challenges. That because you believe in this thing called church, that you will embrace the challenges that are ahead of us with everything that you got. On the other hand, I recognize that there might be some of you here this morning that um, you're, you're not bought in. Like, you're, you're still asking the question, why? Why church? Like, why, why do we get up early on a beautiful day and come here? Like, well, why did other people get up even earlier than that to come and put all of this on? Like, why do we buy a building? Why do we gather? Why do we sing? Why do we listen to some guy talk for 35 or 40 minutes? Like, why? Why do we do this? 
And when it comes to this thing called house church, why, why do we give up a night of our, our, our week to, to, to make food that we share with other people and, 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 and dive into to, to the, the word of God? Like, I got my own Bible study going. I got my, my own quiet time with God. Like, I need to study something else in addition to this in order to, like, why? Why do all this? What's the purpose? What's the point? So uh, for you this morning, the, the, the idea is I'm gonna take you on a little hike. Okay, we're, we're going to walk through Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 together. And along the way, I'm going to point out three different challenges that we're going to see. Three different legs of the journey that, that are challenging to us. But at the end, my hope is to point you to something that you'll see as the purpose of this. That at the end, you'll see the reason for church. And my hope is that you don't go, meh. Right? And so, let's make a beginning here. Verse 1. Ephesians 4, I therefore, I therefore, what? that's a credible beginning, isn't it? I therefore, therefore is actually a really important biblical word. It's a hinge word. It, it ties everything that came before it with everything that's about to come after it. Therefore is a huge, huge word. And Ephesians is only six chapters, and we're over halfway through it now. We've spent the first three chapters looking at what Paul has said about who God is, what God has done, and how that changes our identity, Right? And it's the therefore that's going to direct our purpose going from that. But here's what we've seen. We've seen that, that God is, that God is Trinitarian. God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit. And God is at work in our salvation. And we look at what God has done, and we see that the Father calls, and the Father sends, and the Son comes, and the Son sacrifices. And the Spirit indwells, and, and, and enlightens, and, and guides, and, and empowers. And, and we see all the things that God is, and all that God has done. And what that does is it changes our, our, our identity. It changes who we are. And what Paul tells us is that we were once dead spiritually, but now we're alive. He, he tells us that we were slaves but, but now we've been set free. We were slaves to the world and, and to, the, to our flesh and, and to the devil, but, but now we're free. He says that we were condemned. We were under the wrath of God, but no more. We're, we're justified. We were strangers. We were aliens. We were foreigners. We were outsiders. We were outcasts, but we've been brought in and we've been made citizens and we've been made family and we've been adopted and, and we have this new identity because of who God is and what God has done for us. But all along the way, Paul has been setting us up that all of this is for something. And he says this in Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them for something last week I introduced you to a guy named Watchman Nee he was a Chinese pastor who spent the last 20 years of his life in a Chinese prison where he died um, he was a part of an underground church movement in China and he understood the purpose of this thing called church. But he wrote a little book on Ephesians that's called Sit, Walk, Stand. It's three words that he, he uses to define the main movements of this letter to the Ephesians. And the first one is sit. And we looked at this briefly last week. But what, what Nee points out is that because of what Jesus has done, that, that Jesus and God, they, they've done everything. Just so you know, they've done everything for your salvation. You're, you're required to believe it. You're, you're required to embrace it by faith. But God has done everything for you to be saved. But here's what he points out, is that in Christ's death, your sin is crucified. And in Christ's resurrection, spiritually, you are raised from the dead. And then you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. 
Spiritually speaking, if you are in Christ right now, you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Sit. You are sitting. You are resting. The job is complete. Salvation is done. End of story. Seated with Christ. God has done everything necessary for you. And so that's where we begin. But here's this transition word, therefore. And we move into this, this movement of walking. Therefore, out of this reality, walk. You see, you haven't just been saved from something. You haven't just been saved from the wrath of God. You haven't just been saved from sin. You haven't just been saved from death. You've been saved to. You've been saved for. There is a purpose here that we're going to get into. And we're going to be in this, this walk phase right up until the end of, of the book of Ephesians where we get to the stand. That's our posture towards the spiritual enemy that we have. That's the very end of chapter 6. You see, we get to walk. Now, I want to say this morning that you don't have to walk. I, I want to let you know that because Christ has done everything for you, there is nothing that you do that saves. So if you have in the back of your mind that church participation will be the thing that earns your salvation, you've gotten it wrong. All right? This, this walking doesn't save you. It's a response to what does. Walking doesn't save you. I want to say, you don't have to walk. You should, but you don't have to. And my hope is that by the, the end of our time together today, you'll see the reason for walking, and you'll embrace it. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This is the attitude by which we walk. This is, this is the, the attitude by how we conduct ourselves in, in this walk. You see, pride is the thing that has derailed humanity since the very beginning. We understand that when we look at the history of the church, wherever we see disunity, wherever we see tribalism, wherever we see immaturity, we see pride. We see a refusal to repent of sin. We see heavy-handed authoritarianism. We see quick judgment. We see hasty rejection. We are called to walk with the same attitude which Christ walked with, with humility. And Paul says something at the, at the very end of that. He says, we need to bear with one another in love. Do you know what that literally means? It means put up with one another. Put up with one another. Put up with one another's faults. Put up with one another's failures. Put up with one another's character issues. Put up with one another. And you put up with me as I put up with you because Christ put up with us in love. This is the motivation with which we walk. Now, we actually haven't started. We're still at the trailhead of this, of this little hike. And so I'm going to show you the map of this little hike that we're going to go on, all right? There's three phases, three legs to this hike, three challenges that we're going to see in, in what Paul writes here. The, the first challenge is the unity challenge. What does it look like to be unified? You're going to see that in verses 3 through 6. The second challenge is the diversity challenge. That's verses 7 and 8 and 11 and 12. And then lastly, we're going to look at this maturity challenge. This is verses 13 through 15. So let's begin. The unity challenge. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body 
and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, for those of you who've been a, a part of, of this series since, since the beginning, have you noticed the Trinitarian nature of the book of Ephesians? H- have you noticed that in almost every passage that Paul has written, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, if not directly talked to, then, then alluded to. So the Trinitarian nature of who God is is right there. And see, the, the point of this is that our unity is actually supposed to reflect God's identity. Our unity as a church is supposed to reflect God's unity in the Godhead. John Stott, he rephrases and reorders these verses this way. He said, the one Father creates the one family. The one Lord Jesus creates the one faith, hope, and baptism. The one Spirit creates the one body. The unity of the church should reflect the unity of the Godhead. It should point us to what God is like. How come the church is so disunified? This is a legitimate question the world is posing. If Christianity is true, why is it so divided? And the the proof of our division is, is, is evident just by driving across town. If you travel on Upper Bell Book Road from, from Indian Ripple uh, down to the heart of town and then up uh, east out 42 towards uh, Clifton, do you know how many churches and denominations you pass in that seven-mile stretch? Fifteen. Fifteen churches in seven miles. Why? Why? Because we are not eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, the, the, the words eager to maintain there, they, they kind of don't do uh, the, the Greek justice. What Paul means is he means spare no effort. Spare no sentiment. Spare no attitude. Spare no reason. Even spare no physical strength in maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, you're probably thinking that I'm trying to move us to some sort of ecumenical thing, right? I'm not. You know, ecumenical um, structures, they they always fail. And they fail because of of one or of two reasons. They, 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 They drive into one of two different ditches, so to speak. The first ditch is is the ditch of of liberalism. That for the sake of unity and for the sake of, of bringing everyone together in one happy family, the truth of who God is is forsaken. See, these words words here in in verses 3 through 5, these are creedal in nature. These are doctrinal. These are words that express who God is and what God has done. And see, if we begin to remake God, if we change what he's revealed about himself, if we change what he said about what he's done, then then we make a God who who is more like an idol than like God. And we change the truth. And what we have is, is no truth and all love. And that's a dead end. On the other hand, we can veer into the right side of the, the ditch, and that's the, that's the legalism ditch. That's where we have nothing but truth, but we have no love. I want you to notice about this passage. It begins and ends in love with doctrine in the middle. 
It begins and ends with love, with truth in the middle. The church is built on a foundation of truth, tr- truth but its walls are walls of love, which holds it together. I'm not advocating to, to, to sort of get some sort of ecumenical thing going here in Zenith. Here's what I am saying, is that we as a church need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit within us and within our contact with the, with the churches around us when we meet. And this is a difficult thing to do. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I had, I had lunch with a friend, and uh, he doesn't, uh, he's not a part of, of New Community. And he actually asked me the question, um, uh, how, how do you know when it's okay to leave a church? And he's, he's struggling in the church that he's at. And, and every part of me just wanted to say, I got you, man. Come on over. Right? Our church is great. I got you. I'll take care of you. Like, you're an A, A, A plus teammate anyway, man. I want you on my team, right? No. Like, if, if I'm going to be eager to maintain the bond of peace, then I have to look at him and I say, like, have you done everything you could? Have you done everything you can to make sure that you're at peace there, that you have unity there? Are you working towards something? You see, unity is difficult. Uh, years ago, I heard a joke um, by a Nazarene pastor. Later, I heard the same joke by a Baptist pastor. I'm going to change it for our purposes. Um, we're a non-denominational church, and if you don't know what that means, it means we have no allegiance to anybody, really. We're the most divided of any organization. That's what it means to be non-denominational. We, we, don't, we don't play well with others. And, and so anyway, here, here's, here's the joke. Um, a bus rolls up to the pearly gates, and, uh, and, and uh, one guy jumps out of the bus and he, and he goes over to, to St. Peter and St. Peter says, um, denomination? And he says, Methodist. And the guy says, okay, uh, room 18, uh, be quiet as you pass room 8. Next guy gets off the bus and goes over to St. Peter and uh, St. Peter says, denomination? He said, Lutheran. Oh, wonderful. Room 12, be quiet as you pass room 8. Presbyterian gets off the bus, goes, to St. Peter, St. Peter says, denomination, says Presbyterian, wonderful, room 19, be quiet as you pass room 8. And the Presbyterian goes, like, I understand why we're in different rooms, right? But why do I have to be quiet when I pass room 8? And he says, well, room 8 is for the non-denominational church, and they think they're the only ones here. (laughs) Now, it's partly funny, and it's partly sad. And it highlights the fact that, that we are not eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Like, what Paul is so emphatic. Like, these words literally means, do it. Do it now. Have that kind of eagerness when it comes to maintaining. And see, the truth is, is it's easier to divide. It's easier to walk away. It's easier not to work it out. It's easier not to listen to one another. It's easier to leave the table. It's hard to maintain unity. But if you believe in this thing called church, if you believe that God has called you to this and to partake partake in this, then don't let anything hold you back from unifying. Maintain that unity. However, if you don't want to go through that work, and it's work, you don't have to. You, you, you don't have to. Because you know what? 
You've been saved by grace. And you can sit and do nothing. Second challenge. The diversity challenge. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Skip to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Unity does not mean conformity. Uh, um, Last week, if you were here, uh, we talked about how, you know, uh, it, it is Christ, it is Christianity that has raised love to this high standard of, of ethic which should govern human behavior. It, it, is, it is the principle of love, and it, it's Jesus himself who raised this up. And, and our culture has come along and it has braced the fruit of what Jesus has done, though it severed the root from God. And we have, we have said that love is not of him, it's of us. And we've, we, we've taken this, this thing called love and we've, we've kept it as something high and, and revered and, and something to attain, but, but it's not a thing of God, it's a thing of man, it's ours. And because of that, it loses its power. But the reality is, is, is just as Christ elevated and showed us what love is, so Christ elevated the individual. It is Christianity that recognizes that the individual has value and worth because it is an image bearer of God. It's an image bearer of God, and that's where our worth and that's where our value comes from. Before Christianity, tribalism ruled, and that is this idea that the individual is subservient to the needs of the tribe. So you don't choose who you marry, you don't choose what your career is, you don't choose where you live, you don't choose where you go, you're a part of the tribe, and because of that, the needs of the tribe outweigh the needs of the individual. Jesus said the individual has value and worth because they're image bearers of God. And, and from the world, Christ has called out from all nations and tribes and tongues a people of variance and, and, and degrees of differences, one another. Unity doesn't mean conformity. And not only does, does Christ create this church of all the peoples of the earth, he gives gifts to the people in this church. He, he gives varied gifts for his purposes. In the New Testament, we see five lists of spiritual gifts. And the, the total number is about 20. And what's interesting about those spiritual gifts is that they, they don't line up with one another. They're, they're not reproductions of one another. There's variance in between them. And it's like the New Testament writers are saying like, that the God's gifts are varied for his purposes and we're not gonna try to nail them down. There's a number of spiritual gifts that you, you can have and you can be blessed with by Christ. And he gives you those gifts in order to participate in what it is that he's doing. Now he lists five gifts here. And these are gifts that you might call word gifts or ministry, word ministry-centered gifts where uh, these are about um, communicating, explaining uh, the, the word of God to people. But these gifts are, are meant to equip the body, all of the church, for works of ministry. And what we tend to do is we look at these gifts and we say, these are the individuals within a church who are responsible for the ministry. And that's not the truth. The truth is that these are the people who are responsible to equip the whole church for ministry. That the whole church is on a great commission. The whole church is called to make disciples, to make disciples. Right? But, but, but you see, this is hard. To, 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 to come to, to, to this body and say, I, I have a gift, but I don't know what that is. 
finding out what your gift is and then honing that gift and then plugging in that gift into the body of, of Christ, putting that gift to work. This is, this is hard. And, and oftentimes we, we might look at one another's gifts and be like, I, I wish I had that gift. I don't like the gift that I have. And there's jealousy there. This is, this is difficult, but, but you see, you, you don't have to. You've been saved by grace. The work's been done for you. You're, you're, you're seated with, with Christ. You don't, you don't have to use this gift. Jesus isn't going to love you any more than he loves you now if you do. If you don't use this gift, it's, it's not, it's not going to secure your salvation. Your salvation's already been secured if you're in Christ by faith. You don't have to. Last challenge. Maturity challenge. 13 through 15. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure, the stature, or the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. You know, when, when Paul here, when he's talking about the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, he's talking about sound doctrine. He's talking about sound doctrine. The, the reality is, is there is an enemy who, like a creepy old guy driving around in a van with no windows, wanting to lure you in with puppies and ice cream, there's an enemy who wants to deceive you. Here's what Paul says about that. Um, uh, later, at the, uh, the last part of Acts, um, Paul is headed towards Jerusalem because he knows he's going to be arrested and he's, he's headed towards that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he's on his way past Ephesus and so he calls the elders of, of Ephesus to meet him. And this is what he tells those leaders. He says, I know that after my departure, fear, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Here's what he's saying, is that people love to be followed. People love to gain an audience. People love to be heard. People love to have a soapbox. People love to rally people to themselves. Right? People within the church will actually rise up and they will deceive people who don't know the word of God in order to follow them. You know, when we look at, at the history of the church, we see, we see schisms, right? We see big breaks and, and schisms that come out of that. I would argue that the, the, the church as it is is divided, is, is by and large not because of, of the great schisms of history, but because of the little tiny schisms that happen within churches because people don't know what God has said. People that have arisen up within churches and they lead people to follow them into one of those two ditches that we talked about earlier. Either into liberalism with, with no truth and all love or in the, into legalism with, with all truth and no love. Getting people to follow them because they don't know what the word of God has said. I would argue that the thing that has divided most churches isn't the, the, the main essential doctrines. It's that people don't know the dis, the, how to distinguish between what's essential and what's not. People make important issues the issue. People who say, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. People who say, well, if you don't have this view of the end times, you're not saved. 
If you, wasn't, if you weren't submersed in your baptism, then you're not saved. Like, we, we take issues that are important to have knowledge about, they're important to have a stance on, important things, but we make them the ultimate thing. We, we put them in the place of the gospel, and we say, this is what you must believe in order to be in. The divided church is, is because people don't know what they believe. You don't know what the difference is between what is essential and what's not. Do you know what the word of God says? Or do you expect to come to a place like this on a Sunday morning and have it spoon-fed to you? Is it okay for somebody else to know it for you? There's an enemy. And he wants to tear you apart. Do you know who God is? Do you know what he's done? Do you know what he's said? See, maturity is hard. Growing up is hard work. Like, engaging in the Bible outside of this, engaging in Scripture in your house church, in preparation for your house church, diving into the Word of God on your own, it, it's hard work. And the truth is, you don't have to do it. You can just sit. You've been saved by grace. The work's been done for you. You don't have to. But maybe once we get to the end of the hike, you'll want to. Verse 16, Paul closes this section with these words. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that builds itself up in love. What Paul is pointing us to is that, that when we take part in this thing called church, we are part of the biggest movement and monument that has ever been created and it's the only one that has eternal value and significance. That the church is this thing that God is forming out of his people that will last forever. But that's not the purpose I want you to point to. This is. Look at back at verse one. I therefore a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk. So, Paul was told by the Spirit that he was going to be arrested. Um, there were prophets that actually came to Paul and told him that if he goes to Jerusalem, um, he was going to endure arrest, he was going to be put on trial, and all of these other things. And Paul's response to that was to walk to Jerusalem, to go there. When Paul says, I'm a prisoner, he's not a prisoner of Rome, he's not a prisoner of Nero, he's not a prisoner of his circumstances, he's a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's willingly a prisoner. Why? What is the purpose? What is the reason he would do that? And he tells us, 9 and 10, the verses we skipped over earlier. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended. Into the lower regions of the earth, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. He's pointing to the gospel. Here's what Paul is saying. In the beginning, God created you to be an image bearer of him. He created you to accurately reflect his unity and his diversity and his beauty to all the world. But you chose not to. You chose to, to reflect yourself. You chose to glorify yourself. You chose to unplug from the author of life. And the reality is, is that death entered your existence. Spiritually, that day you died. Physically, you eventually died. But sin became a part of what and who you were. 
And because of that, you are dead spiritually. Because of that, you're slaves to the world, to the flesh, to Satan. Because of that, you are condemned under the wrath of God. Because of that, you are foreigners. You are aliens. You are outside of the family of God. You are, you are alone without hope. But God. But God. God takes on flesh. See, the Son of God descends. That's what he's pointing to right here. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God descends and he takes on flesh to live the life that you couldn't live in order to be the sacrifice that you couldn't make. And in his death, he who knew no sin became sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God. You see, he descended. Paul is willing to be imprisoned. He's willing to forfeit his life because he sees Jesus descended, taking on flesh. He sees the cross of Jesus and he's changed by it. He sees what Jesus has done and his great love for him and he's changed by it. He knows the love of God and how it has changed him and could change the world. The cross has changed everything for him. And because of the cross, he's full of gratitude. He's full of love that he's willing to do and he's willing to be and he's willing to sacrifice for him. You see, the cross is the response. It initiates the response that enables you to be, become part of this church, become part of the church, to see what God is doing in the world and say, I want to be a part of that in response to what he's done for me. He loved me when I was an, his enemy. He loved me when I was an outsider. He loved me when I was alone and without hope, and he rescued me. You see, the reason, the purpose the thing that will get you to, to join into this thing is the cross. It is knowing full well what has been done for you. And see, if you make it to the end of this little hike and you see the cross before you and you see what Jesus did for you and your response to that is, meh. If you see what God has done in order to redeem you, and your response is, what's the big deal? See, what that says is you have an intellectual assent to what the cross is, and that's what Satan has. But it's never penetrated your heart and made any sort of difference inside. What that means is that you haven't really, by faith, embraced Christ. And you're not seated. And you're not saved. Because if you haven't been changed by the cross of Jesus, it's still external to you. See, I, I need a reason to do difficult things. I, I need more than, than guilt. I need more than religious obligation. I need a reason and when it comes to the work that is, that is involved in maintaining the unity, when it comes to the work that's involved in, in, in all of these gifts that have been given to us and, and employing them, when it comes to the work of growing up in Christ, all of that work is worth it because I see the cross. Because what Jesus has done has made it worth it. Is that your reason?
you need another one? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for uh, you to speak. Uh, we pray for more than intellectual assent. We pray for, for deeper knowledge than, than that. We pray that you would peel back the layers of our heart and help us to see the height and the breadth and the depth of your great love for us. We pray, Father, that uh, by the power of your spirit, we would not walk away from, from this today satisfied with uh, intellectual knowledge of you that we would embrace um, embrace all that you've done for us and be changed by it. Pray if there's anyone here this morning, Father, who uh, who is beginning to see the depth of that love, that uh, you would walk them the rest of the way, that you would give them the courage to come and talk to one of us, uh, one of the elders, myself, or Father, that nobody would leave here today um, just satisfied with some sort of uh, light version of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray.